Hello, and welcome to Business Talk, brought to you by Business West and sponsored by People's Bank. Hi, I'm Chris Kellogg from the Kellogg Crew Morning Show on 94.7 WMAS. And I'd like to introduce the host of this week's episode. He's the editor of Business West. Here's Joe Bednar. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Business Talk. We have a great show for you today. But first, we have this important message from our sponsor, People's Bank. Thank you for listening to the Business Talk podcast, sponsored by People's Bank, bringing you the best in business experts, entrepreneurs, and evangelists. Make Business Talk your innovation break for ideas and inspiration. People's Bank, where commercial banking can fuel your growth and make work life easier. Member FDIC, DIF equal housing lender. Bank at peoples.com slash business. Okay, we're back. And as promised, we have a great show for you today. Our guest is Meg Sanders, CEO of Canna Provisions. Happy to have you here on Business Talk, Meg. Thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for including me on this uh, on this amazing day. I'm happy to be here. Um, you, you know, you've been a friend of our magazine, and thank you for that. Um, uh, over over the last couple of years, offer, you've offered plenty of insight into the cannabis industry locally and nationally. Um, c- can you let our, our listeners know about your background in this field, uh, both in Colorado and then more recently in Massachusetts, and also about Canna Provisions and how that's grown? Sure. Um, I've had the uh, distinct pleasure and probably a lot of pain of being involved in the cannabis space since 2009. Um, Started in Colorado before we even had regulations um, and was kind of there trying to operate a business. We we often refer to building the airplane, flying the airplane, trying to land the airplane all at the same time. And that was really what it was like trying to plug your business model that's already existing into a regulated structure. Mm. Um, and it was it was hard. There was a very limited time frame to do it. And uh, so just speaking from, you know, a, a, a state that has gone a, come a long way in the cannabis journey all the way through adult use and and now where they are, um, you know, market consolidation and and uh, it just all kinds of things that, that Colorado uh, went through. Uh, obviously, I came to the table um, going forward with a with a ton of experience in the cannabis space, and that kind of led to um, a lot of consulting opportunities for myself and my partner Eric. And every new state that came online after, you know, after 2014 needed help. There's operator, you know, people that wanted licenses that needed help, lobbyists that needed help, regulators or, or, or legislators that, that needed some guidance on how do we form things that are responsible and thoughtful. And, and so we were often the voice in the room, kind of giving the business perspective of this is the, these are the things you need to worry about. And that, that led us to Massachusetts, um, especially after the adult use, uh, vote passed. And it took a while for the regulations to get into place. But once we saw them, it was, it made a lot more sense for us to kind of focus more. And honestly, we were tired of flying all over the country because we were consulting everywhere. And it was just nice to, to be able to, to kind of focus on a state. So we got ourselves a few clients, a handful of clients there. And in that process of helping people find locations and work through uh, local ordinances and all that fun stuff, uh, we found the, the 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 person behind what is now Canna Provisions, and that's how we got here. And honestly, once you know, we were all over the place in in Massachusetts. Every every city that had an ordinance in place that wasn't banned, we were working with entities there. And um, honestly, when we we're taking the the turnpike over, um, over the pass and landed into the Berkshires, and then pulled into Lee. I think we both looked at each other and went, 
where are we? This is a beautiful <laughs> place to be. And we just fell in love with the Berkshires. And, um, and that was really, you know, it was kind of heart, heart centered. It was, we want to be in this space and it's beautiful. And the same thing kind of happened with Holyoke, but in a different vein. We have a lot of passion for urban redevelopment, um, beautiful old buildings. How do we restore? How do we preserve? How do we keep the look and feel of this magnificent, what, what once was a magnificent city, um, the wealthiest city in the United States? And how do we use our our business as part of the pillars that lift this beautiful city back up? And um, that, that was that was really what was going on in Holyoke. So we had two big passionate projects and and that's how we uh, formed Canna Provisions. You know, you mentioned in talking about Colorado that you kind of saw the way the um, the market moved there. Um, you know, I, I guess the initial green rush and then the contraction. So I, I, so I know the, you know, what people are going through now here, the our, our proprietors are going through now with the effects of heightened competition in Massachusetts has really impacted prices and profit. And all, none of that is a surprise to you. So how does an adult use dispensary not only survive, but thrive in this current environment that's, that's um, changing so much? Um, I think the thriving part is part two. Um, I think right now <laughs> the thinking cap is surviving. That's really the topic of the day. That's what that's what we all need to be looking at, thinking about. And I think it depends on what what, what your part is in the industry. Um, we're super fortunate in that we're vertically integrated. So um, most of our flour goes through our stores. But that was an on-purpose shift because we were very worried about the wholesale market and the receivables issue of people not paying their bills. Mm. So as a little company um, with not a ton of, of product available for wholesale, we looked in the mirror and just really decided that we're going to, we're going to pull back. And uh, also, by the way, wholesale is really expensive to run. You know, it's not just grow it, sell it. There's salespeople that need to be involved. There's transportation, there's you know, brand ambassadors, there's marketing efforts, there's pop-ups. I mean, there's a lot behind it. And so you have to be hitting a certain number in revenue to even make all those expenses make sense. But ultimately what it came down to for us with a very small amount of product that we had to sell anyway, we just decided let's move the bulk of that through the dispensaries and let's maintain four or five great relationships that we have out there that are wholesale relationships and that we've, you know, we've built and we trust. And that that's part of our decision. I think the the other part is the reality check of the price drop. And I think um, Commissioner Roy quoted this a couple of weeks ago that, the, you know, the price, the prices have dropped 200% since 22. And there's not enough volume on the, in the planet <laughs> to make up for that, right? So, so if you just equate that right down to revenue or, you know, what does that look like from a revenue standpoint? You're not going to get enough butts through the door to, to compensate for that price drop. It's just, it's, it's a math problem that I, I, I don't know how you solve it. So the reality is you keep your good business going. You're really thoughtful about products so that you can manage your inventory expense. You're maybe not stuffing the vault full as much as you were. You know, you're kind of pulling back on that. To, to help with your cash flow, and you have to look at every single penny, and do, you know, do we spend this penny on this? Hmm. And I think I think that there's a handful of of little stores and and small one off operators that are probably just fine because it only takes maybe four people to operate their store, so payroll's not a big deal. Um, they can survive on you know 100 bucks at the door if they're lucky. Maybe maybe they get a little more. 
Um, but I think the reality is for most people, the, the revenue change is a really tough thing to manage. You know, given um, um, that current landscape and, and, and all that, you know, um, I think really uh, thoughtful advice for um, companies that are, are in the business now, is it, has it kind of created a situation where it's too, it's too daunting to enter the market for a new proprietor or, is there, or do you think there's still room for, new, for more players um, who, you know, kind of do it the right way? So that's a loaded question because it depends on how they're financed, right? If they if they have, you know, if they have if they're coming at this with a really strong, you know, bank account or really strong investors that understand the market, understand we're in a downturn and it's going to take some time to to find your space. Um, you know, that that particular company might be well positioned to get going, get going slowly, you know, nuance their way through it and and make it happen but for for most people you know you've done a money raise or you're through or you're starting a money raise or you've been promised money but now you've got to go back to the table and say okay now it's time to pay me because i've got my license i'm ready to build out um that's those are really tough conversations that are happening right now and i think the other part is a lot of people maybe didn't factor into a couple things like do i have enough money left after my build out to have pay, to have employees to purchase products, you know, the, those are very real concerns. And I do think the other issue, depending on where you're opening, but if you're opening in a, in a town that already has a pretty vibrant cannabis market, it is hard to pull those customers away. It's expensive to pull them away and it's even more expensive to keep them. So those are the realities of the landscape we're in. And I think if you're wholesale or if you're wholesale manufacturer or wholesale cultivation, if, if I'm in your shoes, my biggest concern is, is are, am I going to get paid? And when you look at a brand new operator opening, that's a real big risk. So I know sure. some companies are requiring COD for that first order, for the first five orders. Um, that's going to really limit what people are putting into their stores, for example, if they're retail and they only have so much capital. So I think it's a really challenging time to enter the market. I think it's exponentially more expensive to enter the market right now. And there's so many unknowns. I think it's risky. That, that's just my personal opinion. I'm not trying to dissuade anyone or, or say, sure. don't do it. But if it were, if I were looking at this market and said, somebody said, Hey, Meg, here's $10 million, go open a store. I don't know that I would take that bet because at the end of the day, I'm mm. responsible for the $10 million. You know, that's scary. Um, and there's a lot that needs to be hammered out in our in our market still. Um, I mean, we have there's there's definitely compression happening. I'm sure I'm sure you're getting those news stories and oh yeah. Um, and some of the stuff we're just talking about licenses that aren't being renewed, but in reality, there are places that are just closing the door, locking it, and walking away. And the CCC isn't even involved yet, or the town maybe isn't even aware yet that they've just decided to, to, to take off. So I think there's an element of that. I know um, there was a store in the Berkshires and in uh, Northampton that was open on Friday, told their employees they were closing and closed the doors on Sunday. And I haven't seen hide nor hair of them. So it's, it's like, it's just a really interesting thing right now. I, I, if I, I was talking to someone about giving a prediction and they were like, well, let me put my tinfoil hat on and um, maybe I'll nail that for you. But um, I don't, I, I don't want to say it's impossible. I just think that it's going to be way more expensive and it's definitely riskier right now to enter this market brand new. 
You're listening to Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West and sponsored by People's Bank. We're talking today with Meg Sanders, CEO of Canna Provisions. Um, so let's talk about a lawsuit you're involved with, um, which is, I believe, a, if, correct me if I'm wrong, a coalition of uh, cannabis businesses seeking to block the federal government from enforcing cannabis prohibition against state legal activity. Um, I know that's a current situation that impacts everything from banking to taxes to transportation. Um, kind of explain what's going on here and how did you become involved with this effort? So the the purpose of the lawsuit is to basically challenge the constitutionality of the Controlled Controlled Substance Act on intrastate activity. So anything within the state borders, basically the suit alleges that the federal government has no say what happens within state borders. And the attorneys, honestly, I'm not an attorney. Let me put my disclaimer out there. I'm not (laughs) an attorney. This is not like, I'm not, um, I'm not an expert on this. Um, the attorneys are, are really well, way more well-versed to speak about it. But I would say that the notion of constitutionality in this particular area, they're looking at other things that this, this current court has ruled on and using that logic saying, well, if you have ruled state law here, you got to rule it here. You can't pick and choose the constitution. And I think overall, that's the goal. Now, what is the benefit of that? Well, or let's actually take a step back. Why did they file it now? Or, and how did I get involved? So they've been watching this issue. The attorneys have been watching this issue, I want to say, for about two years. Mm-hmm. And like I said, based on a lot of things that were going on in the industry and with the court, they decided this is the time to file. And I wasn't, I wasn't aware of this lawsuit. I wasn't aware of what was what they were intending on filing until um, somebody recommended me to be part of it. And so we had substantial meetings with the legal team, our legal team, our board um, about this particular issue. And we all felt like there's some, there's something here. This is an important way to approach it. And this is from people that have been on the receiving end of the, of the, read the read the tea leaves oh the federal government's going to finally pass safer or safe or oh now they're going to deschedule or this or that and i think ultimately when you look at the makeup of our lawmaking cats or our lawmaking branch in in the federal government i don't know what's going to happen and i don't think anything like this is going to happen and even if the dea decides to 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 reschedule there's so much to unpack with that. I just don't even know how it's possible to get it, you know, to get it done in any timely fashion. So this is a kind of a parallel path. It's just another way to try to get 280E out of our, out of our business. And let's pause on that and talk about what is 280E. So because cannabis is federally illegal, we are, we, the, the tax code 280E is applied to us. And if you ever want to read a really interesting story about how 280 came about, you should read about it. But it was basically a um, drug dealer that was a, a millionaire flying all over the place, moving, trafficking narcotics. And he was filing taxes and claiming business deductions on his illegal business. And the government was recognizing that and honoring it. And he was paying taxes. And of course, why did he do that? Because where do they always get you? Tax evasion. 
right? Yeah. That's the, that's an easy one. So he was like, yeah, you're not getting me on that. So he gets popped eventually. And the basically Congress found out about he had been doing this with his taxes. And lo and behold, probably the fastest piece of legislation ever done was 280E. <laughs> now, 280E is a really painful, painful code. Oh, yeah. And it basically, how it, how it works is it says normal business deductions are not eligible to be used on your taxes. You can only deduct cost of goods. That's it. And people, I mean, the, the industry spends so much time, legal, accounting, trying to manage the tax code. And manage the legal structure of what the t- of how of what has been challenged, what has been seemingly blessed by the IRS. We're always working on that, and that, by the way, is a really expensive prospect. So you compound. I I have a, an effective tax rate of seventy three percent. So take my EBITDA number and take seventy three percent of it and just write a check to the federal government. It's a crazy number. It really is. Um, and then. Then you add the extenuating circumstances of trying to manage all of this, and especially if you're more than one um, license. So, of course, our accounting bill is probably super elevated than a normal business. Our legal bill is probably way larger than a normal business because there's just so much to, um, so many T's to cross and so many I's to dot. And that's just part of it. And then you then you you extrapolate out to banking access to financial services, lending, um, you know, just, just traditional financial opportunities for a normal business to go. Just like small, like what if we could get SBA loans? What if we could apply for federal grants? I mean, there's so many, there's so much money out there that a, a, a small business should be eligible for, but we can't do any of that because we're federally illegal. And, Banking has softened. There's many banks. I would say Massachusetts is probably one of the friendliest banking um, banking states in the United States as far as cannabis. I've we have a lot, that, yeah. a lot of very thoughtful, kind, smart bankers out there that are trying to service the industry. And that's great. So we have checking accounts. We have saving accounts. Some of us are able to, to do debit debit card acceptance. But we can't take credit cards. I can't get a business loan, um, real estate loan, even though it's probably it's probably fairly standard, especially in this market. You know, it's sixty percent loan to value, so I still got to come up with forty percent. Equipment loans are out there, but they're at a really high interest rate. And also, I can't get access to normal payroll services, so wow. I can't work with a ADP or a Paychex or some of the big guys that are that are really good at what they do. So instead, I have to work with third parties who literally, I swear sometimes there's four people in a room trying to do <laughs> payroll for a whole bunch of companies. But it's kind of, if you're if you're signing up to be in cannabis, you're signing up for all of these headaches. This is, yeah. this is the nature of the beast. And it, it's not negotiable. This is the facts. This is what we have to deal with every single day. And um, it, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. You, know, you you call the the lawsuit kind of a parallel track to other efforts going on. Do you do you see? I, I, and I and I think I think you had even mentioned that who knows what's going to happen. But do you see uh, kind of a, all these um, little efforts eventually 
leading to a, dis a, a descheduling or, or decriminalization or whatever you want to call it. Um, just considering the fact that more than half of the U.S. population now lives in states where it is uh, state level legal. I think that there's a lot of common sense in what you just said, and you just can't ever interject common sense into government. It's just <laughs> not it's not how it's designed to work. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of legislators that really support and see cannabis as an industry for, for their constituents and understand that jobs are being created and there's a lot of revenue. And bottom line, their voters want to buy weed from a regulated dispensary. That's what we see every single day. I mean, our butts at the door are still going up. We still have more people coming in. And the bottom line is every time that happens, what, what, what voters are telling legislators is they want safe access to cannabis. And at what point is that a tipping point? I think we have so many big issues, way bigger issues in our country that are that are grabbing you know our that grabbing attention of our legislators. We have foreign wars. We've got massive economic issues. We've got obviously political issues out the wazoo. And it's like, how do we get this little industry in the mix of that and squeeze it through the cracks? And what ends up happening is. It becomes a bill or part of a bill, and then they want to tap on all this stuff to tackle Ukraine or to tackle, you know, give a million, million examples sure. of the things that they try to tap onto a bill, and it just dies. So, and standalone bills, you know, just don't really happen. I mean, they very rarely happen. So, is the appetite there? I don't think until, until politicians see voters saying, well, because you're negative on cannabis, we're not going to vote for you. I don't think you're going to see a change. I mean, that's just, that's their business. Their business is to get votes. And we as voters, we want legalization, but there's so many other things that are separating us as a country. Those are way more important probably in the eyes of legislatures. Understandable. Does that make sense? It does. It absolutely does. Um, we're just out of, about out of time. Uh, I just wanted to kind of wrap up. Where do you see the cannabis industry long term in Massachusetts? Do you see the the market kind of um, kind of settling itself out? And does that vision for what's hap what ha comes next is that dependent in part on what happens on a federal level? Um, I would say the prediction for Massachusetts right now is that it can't sustain the number of licenses that it has, and we're not. And, and, and the pipe is still open, so more licenses are coming through. And the reality is the market isn't that big. Mm. And, we're, and we're seeing that. So contraction has to happen. And whether that's through a natural market process or whether that's through um, our regulators and legislature, legislators deciding that maybe we need to pause a bit on licensing and figure out what's going on with our market. Um, you know, I don't know where it's all going to shake out, but... To me, I feel like we're, we're in a place where some tough decisions have to be made. And I would say this is probably the riskiest time for anyone entering the market in Massachusetts. If you're established and you have customer base and you have suppliers and you really understand your specific market, you're probably teed up to survive the storm. But if you're brand new, the mistakes you're going to make are, are going to be just so painful and Again, just there's, it's not like you can, if you build it, they will come. That doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. You have to have a significant marketing budget and it's, it's tough. It's really tough. 
I still think it's going to work. I still think we are going to have a successful market, but we have a lot of painful things we have to go through as an industry before we, we stabilize. And that's all the time we have for today. Um, Meg, thank you so much for offering your expertise and your, and your thoughtfulness. I always enjoy talking to you about this, these topics. I appreciate you coming on with me today. I'm happy to be of service, always. And thanks to all of you for tuning into Business Talk, a podcast presented by Business West and sponsored by People's Bank. I'm Joe Bednar, the editor of Business West, and we'll see you next time. 